Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Martin Brockman was an international athlete who represented Great Britain in the decathlon for almost a decade. He competed at two Commonwealth Games and finished third to win a bronze medal for England in Delhi in 2010. Throughout his own athletics career, Martin was a coach at his local athletics club. And after attaining his degree in sports science and business management, Martin became the lead field events coach at Brunel University before moving to the Aspire Academy in Doha, Qatar, where he is currently the head of athlete development. So, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Nice to see you, Martin. Brilliant. Now, one of our favourite books on this podcast is uh, a book called Range by David Epstein. And the key message of that book is why generalists triumph in a specialised world. So, Martin, what do you think? Generalisation, specialisation, what's your views? Well, it's an interesting one because as a decathlete, people see me as a jack of all trades, a guy who he's all right at 10 things. But really, <laughs> decathlon is not 10 events. Decathlon is one event. It's the decathlon. And your aim is uh, to get the highest score possible in the decathlon. It's not to be really good at 10 different events. So what we're really looking to do is to find ways to break each of the events down into its basic components so that we can we can transfer those components across different events. So we're not looking to be the best long jumper, the best hurdler, the best shot putter. We're looking for what are the skills that transfer across all of them. And that's where the generalist uh, kind of methodology transfers across, uh, I don't know, di- different, different places in life because my job as a decathlete was to be able to touch on each of the events now my job as a coach um and in the workplace is to hold conversations with different specialists about different aspects of coaching so my job now as the lead coach isn't to um be the best biomechanist my job is to be able to hold a high level conversation with a biomechanist so they can do their job and that's what i aim to do so the decathlon background i think really helped me to do that from my now kind of leadership managerial role and that's probably why you see these generalists excelling in, in the workplace, not because they're experts at everything, but because they understand their limitations, but they're good enough across the board to hold those high-level conversations. What, what you've done there is straight away boiled decathlon down and a really interesting view of it's not 10 different events, it's one event, and you've boiled it down to the first principles of athletics and the three disciplines, right? So you've talked straight away around throwing, jumping and running and why it's so important to start to look essentially getting better at those. Is that right? Is it as simple as that? Well, the thing is, I, it's not that we're not good at the events. It's that we don't have enough time to dedicate 
well, we don't dedicate as much time to 100 meters as the 100 meter runner, but the principles are the same. So if, if I want to get better at 100 meters, what I need to do is get better at speed. And that speed transfers to the long jump, it transfers to the hurdles, it transfers to the high jump, it transfers to the javelin. So I'm trying to, I'm not trying to train as a 100 meter runner, I'm trying to train to get faster. And that's it. And there's lots and lots of skills that, that we can use to transfer to those events. So something like skipping is excellent because I can use it to teach the, the rhythm into the hurdles. I can use it to teach posture. I can use it to teach pelvic control. I can use it to teach foot contacts. And that's what I'm trying to do. It's not to be an expert in long jump. It's to learn how to teach movement skills. So speed is one of those key components that you need then across the platform. What, what are the others, Martin? How do you break that? training plan down into those different areas you mentioned speed i just wonder if there are other areas and different focuses of sessions or days that you have well how i've learned to do it is to uh, kind of categorize the events so i look at what's what's the speed component what's the strength component how long do you spend on the ground these kind of things and and then you start to clamp the events so things like long jump and javelin and hurdles have similar uh, speed components, strength components, using similar energy systems. So we can train all of those things together. And then things like the shot put and the high jump, even though they look very different, actually in, in terms of the strength requirements to get off the ground and the strength requirements to lift the shot put are quite similar. The, the ground contact time is quite similar. The energy system is quite similar because shot put is two seconds and the high jump is two seconds. So you start to clump them together. We train those events on the same day so that we're not, uh, we're not look, every, everything we do is compatible day to day. And that way we can train one energy system one day by doing the sprints, hurdles, long jump. And we can train completely different energy systems the next day and tick off lots of boxes. I've so, never heard it that way. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I just you watch it and you, you hear about it and you might read a little bit, but that's just blown me away because I've just automatically made links to leadership. And being a leader doesn't mean you're ex an expert in absolutely everything, but you try and use the words there, you identify common components, you are find the bits that are compatible and you group them together. So, so how then... My question is going to be now is how have you transferred decathlon into then your leadership? Um, I mean, to start with, it comes from what are we trying to achieve? So, so at the moment, I've just started to work with a development program um, as, a, as the head of development. Um, and we're, it's a complex task. We, we, we create a list of here's all the things that we need to do and where the, where the students need to be and the athletes need to be once they've been through our three-year development program. But what that is, is creating the vision, creating the direction. So this is our, we're trying to create this dick athlete or whatever athlete it is. Um, and then we've broken it down already into all those components, which is the, the skill development, the physical development, the psychological development. It's really the same process. And once we've got that basic framework in place, then we can start looking at the details of how we go about doing that. And having that framework also means that as we develop these physical capacities, we can start to match them up with the technical capacities. Um, so I, I think it's more of a mindset um, that, that I transfer across. It, it's the taking something that at, 
on surface level looks incredibly complicated. Stripping it right back to the basics and then seeing where we can align those things um, to make it simple again. And I think that there might be a link there to, to scheduling, to self-organization, to, um, to, to your own personal management. Straight away within the first five minutes of our conversation, you've taken us from 10 events to actually two or three key principles. You've simplified it. You've, you've broken it down without diluting it into what's really important. How does that influence your own management of yourself uh, in terms of emotion, time, um, commitment, um, energy? Um, is there a way that you've started to manage that in a leadership aspect that's very similar to how you did that as an athlete? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, the problem is I'm not that smart. <laughs> so you have to make it simple. And I don't have that much time. Again, I didn't have time to train for 10 events individually. I don't have time to do 10 different jobs. Um, so, I mean, what I've tried to do is, is instead of now identifying as a decathlete, I'm spending my time kind of identifying what is, what is the new Martin Brockman, what's the future Martin Brockman look like. And everything I do needs to... It needs to fit the, the picture, fit the puzzle. So I, I don't do anything that's too far away from what I would normally do. So as, as you know, I'm, I'm building my resources for schools, but that fits into exactly what you'd expect from, from Martin Brockman, the head of athlete development. It, it kind of fits the picture. Um, so that way, even though I've got lots of things going on, everything I do comes back to the core, to the core goal. So in terms of scheduling, um, I tried to block out blocks of time for each thing. So I guess it's the same as we're talking about. You, you, you clump certain events together. Well, I, I also clump certain elements of work together. Um, so, and I can spend more time on some than others, depending on what, what's coming up. Um, so I don't feel like I have to be covering everything all the time. It's okay to put something on, on, you know, on the back burner for a while. If I've got something that's important now i guess the same as you've got a competition coming up you're not going to spend too much time working on the doing the hard graph and 400 meters you're going to work on being fresh and having speed and okay what's coming up now that's the important thing um and then when i have time i can go back and readdress and see how it connects together and then push forward with the thing that's important at that time um but you also just have to be aware that anything you're not doing is kind of also going backwards so it's Doing the important thing now, keeping an eye on 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 what's it. It's a bit like spinning plates, really. You're, you're spinning the important plate, but at some point you have to run back and make sure the other one hasn't fallen off. Um, and I think it's it, it, it makes perfect sense. And as soon as you said that analogy, there were educators listening to this that suddenly understood exactly <laughs> what you meant because that that uh, that sort of analogy of spinning plates is one that we can all um, certainly empathise with. And I just wonder how you prioritise those plates to stick with the same sort of analogy. How do you decide which ones are on the verge of falling off that need some attention? And how do you make sure that you do give them the time? And just to add a bit of context to that question, as a decathlete, I'm sure you wouldn't turn up to a Commonwealth Games having not run a 400 metres for a month. Um, I might be wrong in saying that, but I would imagine maybe that's not the case. So how do you make sure that that sort of event that does sort of fit in that you know you can rely on, how do you make sure you still give that the attention it deserves and you, you don't end up dropping a plate that's usually quite easy to spin? I mean, I, I think uh, decathlon and life, every, 
some things are going well, some things going bad, and you you never quite know what's going to go well at, at any time. Uh, you know, in in work life, personal life, and and decathlon life. Um, for me, I've got you, know, you want to practice and practice and practice everything until you can't get it wrong anymore. Um, some of those happened faster than others. So for me, I was a national standard high jumper before I went to decathlon. So after a few more years of training decathlon, I'm not going to forget how to to do the high jump. So I would actually turn up and maybe do six events, uh, six training sessions for the high jump in the year before the competition. And I probably wouldn't need to compete because I know I can turn up and do it on the day. Something like discus, which was a bit more of a long-term project, needs that consistency. Um, but th- those things that those things are self-evident, really. You you know you know your strengths and weaknesses. Um, you also know your timelines and what's coming up. Um, and I guess I guess if you're taking this back to PE, it, it's really I don't meet any PE teachers who who introduce themselves as a oh I'm, I'm an athletics coach and a hockey coach and a gymnastics coach and a football coach. They introduce themselves <laughs> as a PE teacher. And, and that's the same as me. I don't introduce myself as a high jump, long jump, shot put, discus specialist. I'm a, I'm a decathlete. Um, and APE football, football season is coming up. Well, I better prepare for football. But there's also a gymnastics conference or workshop going on. Well, that's a good thing for me to do. I can just tap into that. Um, I think I look at it in that, in that kind of way, even with a decathlon, is okay. the Season's coming up. I better tap in and make sure my high jump's still there. I'm on my discus, my throne, which is not so good. I'm interested in it, Martin, to explore. You've been a professional athlete, and and we look at the stats on how many then people actually make that sort of commitment and manage to get to the top of their game. How many? What, what's the stats looking like with the the athletes that you coach at the Aspire Academy? Are they going to actually go on? How many will go on and be? Professional athletes, how many will drop out? I'm just trying to get a figure for our listeners, really. Well, we we have uh, for athletics. We're taking about fifteen athletes a year. Um, so, but we with World Juniors is every two years, and we'll have hopefully this year somewhere between five and seven athletes competing at the World Juniors from from our academy. So, it's for one school, it's in, incredible results. But obviously. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, we have the facilities, we have the staff, we have the support staff um, to, to make that possible. But that also means that there's a lot of athletes that don't make it because that, that's sport. Um, so how I've tried to set up my program is, is can we set up a, an athletics program where those talented athletes that have the potential to go to World Juniors make it, but those who don't make it, did they get something through having gone through that process of pursuing performance? Yes, and, and and that's where that's where I was trying to. I'm glad you've gone down that avenue because I'd love to know the values of what they actually get through going through that course and how we can then look at how schools related to these elite athletes because they're all kids at the end of the day. It'd be brilliant to touch upon that. Well, I mean, I I, I um we have we have sports psychologists at Aspire, and when I took on the jumps program, we didn't we didn't have one working with the jump program, so. But there was one coming in the future, and I looked at what the needs of my boys were, and realised, especially that they're Arabic boys having to speak a second language because my Arabic is is rusty at best. So um, I realised that they're not probably not in a position to work with psychologists yet. So I built my own program um, to help to help prepare them for when the psychologist came, so we can do this high level psychology. 
but what I really did was I mean I've called it life skills really it's 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 commitment so can they commit to this journey of pursuing performance whether they make it or not it's the pursuing it and teaching them how to uh, how to set goals and, and to pursue performance is the important thing um, we worked on basic communication skills if your English isn't isn't good enough there's other ways to communicate but like verbally and non-verbally um, uh, we I've taught them we used some 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 yoga and meditation to, to teach control so body awareness so postural control as well as controlling emotions and using breathing techniques um, and it built this into the program and then as we go through the program all this comes together um, to aid performance in the long run even though it looks like it takes time away from performance to begin with to be going and doing uh, you know, communication games got a lot of frowns of what's this about but now you can see people coming saying well you've got such a lovely group of boys like, yes because I've, I've worked with them to learn how to communicate with each other even through the, the language barriers. So, and because these are the skills that you can learn through sport that transfer to life outside of sport. Sorry, Alan, I cut you off there. Tell us a bit more about your life skills, Martin. I, I know that's something we talked about when we were in touch with one another over social media, that that was something you were developing. And I got there the commitment and the communication elements. Are there others that you focus on as well? And, and tell us a little bit more about how you do those. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically started with the five C's model uh, with the name of the person. Someone did it in football, and I, I've, I've forgotten his name. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, but he's uh, basically was commitment, uh, communication, uh, concentration, confidence, and control. And, and I worked through those, and when you realise that that's the foundation of happy, healthy people. And then when you start com to combine those, that's really where the sports psychology skills come from. So if I looked at uh, something like commitment and concentration, well, that's commitment to a goal and concentration on it is deliberate practice and teaching people about scope of focus and where they should have their focus at different times. Um, something like confidence and communication is, is self talk teaching teaching them about self and, and um i think maybe i've lost you here uh, no no you're, you're all good with you there, there. Yeah. yeah yeah, I, okay. yeah so, the five yeah. C's, i love, love those five c's martin I, I can i just go to a and make an exit point from you talked about deliberate practice and we're big fans of that and anders ericsson talks about this and Matthew Sage talked about it. And I, I want to bring it around to the 10,000 hours myth or debate or what's your views on that? What's your views on the old 10,000 hours? I mean, the, the, I think the 10,000 hours is uh, well known that, that that's for the real top end. If you want to be a chess grandmaster or a concert pianist or the best in the world. And I think we should be aiming towards that. But um, at this level, I think if someone else spoke about the first 20 hours actually is where you make most of your most of your gains. And um, what what I've what I've focused on with 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 my athletes is um, you know, again trying to find easy ways to communicate it. It's it's about it's not just turning up, it's about what you do when you turn up. So I give them, I track their attendance, as we always have to do, but I also give them a motivation score within the training session. And when we times this together, it gives them some sort of idea of how much work they've actually done. Um, 
And the other thing I do with them for, for a way for them to reflect on it is uh, we basically say every time you come down the runway or, or you, you, you lift the weight or something like that, if you commit to it and, you, and you're, you're thinking about the event, you're thinking about what you're doing and you're trying your best, you get one point. Every time you do it mindlessly without thinking, you get minus one. And our job is to add one and one and one uh, throughout every session, over every week, every month, over every year. And by the end, the person with the most points is going to be the athlete. So it's, it's kind of a, it's on that same same idea, but it's it's also on the the deliberate practice. If, if if you're doing it mindlessly, it doesn't help. It actually has a negative effect. Yeah, and and the teenage brain is so reward incentivized, but we've also got to find a way of making it intrinsically motivated. See, there you've got a little bit of extrinsic intrinsic motivation in. How important is it there where, where there's, give us examples where there's students, are, they're super talented and we've, we've all taught these kids, they're super talented, but they just don't quite have it in them. How do you draw that out, Martin? How do you really get them to fulfil their potential? The, the ones who, um, the ones who don't They're super the talented, but they don't work hard. I mean, th- those, those guys are tough, but it's, um, it's really, you know, a, a drip, drip, drip of, of what the vision is and what the potential, their potential is. And it's helping them. I can't make anyone train. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the problems that I have here is at home, when I was in the UK, people come to me and say, please coach me. And you say, okay, but these are my expectations. And I say, okay, here I'm coming to boys in a school and saying, please let me coach you. And then to say, lift this weight that's really heavy. Well, why would I do that? So it, we have to start with that with that vision we have to start with that goal and and something like aspire is great for that because we have so many athletes going to the world junior championships we have mutaz bashim who provides our role model because he came through the academy came through the jumps program that i'm now leading to go on to be olympic champion so those role models are a great place to start um but we also have to create their own vision to be the next mutaz bashim and we have to continually reward them for every step they make along that journey um obviously we want them to go on to win the olympics we want them to go to world juniors but we have to give them that intrinsic reward along the journey otherwise it, it's it's too big a step for most people yeah I, and, and that's real, very relatable to the classroom as well and and i'm sure there's parallels in, in other walks of life as well Similarly, you, let's go the flip side on that. Then you've got those the students there who maybe aren't quite so so gifted uh, in their uh, in their gene pool, but they really want to work hard. What can you give us our listeners a bit of idea of the strategies that we could really enforce with those guys? I mean, my aim is is I have everyone in the team has a role, uh, whatever that is, and we ha- we have a classic example of that. Someone who I don't think he's missed a single session in five years that I've coached him. I don't think he's missed one. Brilliant. But he's the bottom of the pile. And yet, but he slowly increases, he still slowly gets better model athlete. They always point to him. So he is, in terms of performance, at the bottom. But in terms of attitude, in terms of athlete behaviours, he can still be a role model for the team. And I try and find that role for everyone. 
and he and he's great for that no one is going to work harder and you can still point to that and you can still reward him for that effort and it could be it might be a slow burner as well I look at people like Jamie Vardy who who didn't enter professional football to a much later age uh, and then obviously he's gone on to do great things and there's, there's lots of examples of just late developers and in schools we often reward the biggest strongest fastest early on and there's some people that get left behind who maybe will flourish later on do, do you have specific programs and, and situations where you're looking for those those later developers to flourish well it's something that actually um i got involved with a little bit at the beginning but james baker at aspire has got really into this um bio banding and we mm. we, we are we're measuring you know um growth and height height and weight and but also measuring now uh, we, we we're able to take uh, bone scans of the of the growth plates um and he's taking testosterone levels so we can start to build this real kind of 3d picture of where they are in their maturity and we've got one now that's that's uh, we have a pole vaulter in my jumps group who is now 17 16 or 17 years old and he's still uh biolog- biologically at the same level as kids we have that are 12 years old but psychologically psychosocially the right thing to do is to have him with his peers in an older group but in terms of training content it's better for him to be in the younger age so what we have is him in the in the jumps group with me with the senior boys but we use him in a leadership role for the younger boys coming up so he goes to do he trains with the boys most of the time but then when he goes to do his technical sessions his pole vault sessions he does that with the younger boys that are the same ability as him, and he. But we expect him to act as a leader within that role. Yeah, love that. Is uh... tell us a little bit about um, the intentionality of that. So obviously, as soon as you've got that data with biobanding, we know that data gives us the knowledge that we can have to then make some decisions to help to support children. How intentional are those decisions as we go through? And maybe link that to the training that you do with the students as well. Um, how intentional are you with what they're doing and when they're doing it in relation to the biobanding? So when I was in development before putting the program together, it was it's a three-year program. And it used to be uh, a little bit of a conveyor belt. They come in, they do their three years, and they go out the other end. Um, and the boys that got to the other end and, and weren't ready to move into one of the performance groups or one of the event groups um, were kind of dumped on the wayside a little bit. So what I did is I made accelerated and decelerated pathways. Um, so boys can repeat, we, we, they're called D1, D2, D3, development one, two, three. Um, a boy who comes to the end of development one, who, who ha- hasn't matured physically or hasn't picked up the skills technically can repeat that year. So, but equally boys who are showing aptitude halfway through the year that they've come in, they're 11 years old, they've already got moustache and they've been doing sports for, for five years. We can, we can move them up into the next group if they're ticking off the objectives of the next group already. Um, so that means that three-year programme could be anywhere between two years and four years, but the structure remains the same. The skills we're developing are the same and the physical development we expect to see stays the same. The only problem comes when you have a boy who is so far behind in their physical development um, that if we continue to repeat them from a psychosocial issue, 
um, we don't want them with boys that are maybe three years behind them, which is why we then allow this boy to move up into the jumps program, even though probably physically, well, physically, definitely he's not ready. Um, technically, he's at the level of the younger boys, but psychosocially, he's better off with the older boys. Yeah. It's because that's where his peers are. But if we can still have him training with the younger boys if we put him in there as a you know, leadership role. So there's a sort of a stage, not age approach to this. It is very intentional in terms of where you put students and where. I just wonder, do the, do the children um, that take on athletics at Aspire Academy, do they take on other sports as well and other activities or do they just take on athletics? So they come into the athletics program. So we have we have uh, we have different sports, obviously fencing, squash, table tennis. But they come into the athletics program. Um, but they have multi-sports sessions throughout the week. So we have we have up to eight training sessions a week, um, up to eight PE sessions really. So they in development the whole way through. They're doing doing gymnastics because it's great for core strength and and flexibility and movement skills. We also have multi-sport sessions. So they're doing, we have coaches come in to deliver basketball and football and hockey. Um, but always, again, back to this kind of decathlon ethos of it's not just going and do some gymnastics. It's, okay, what can we teach them in gymnastics that transfers back to athletics? And what can we, can we use the ball sports, the basketball, to build that general capacity? So we have them running up and down in a fun way. It's engaging. We're building that aerobic capacity and that means in athletics we can spend all our time developing skill and then as they move through the pathway the gymnastics the the games recedes into the background and the athletics starts to take over so there's a smooth intentional transition and i imagine having the multi-sports and gymnastics and the other parts that you do gives you opportunity to hit your five c's as well i'm sure that sort of opportunity hasn't been missed yeah, and it's something that I want to get more into as, as now I'm going back to um, to, to head the program. Um, but I'm already having conversations with the, with one of our multi sports coaches about how we can build those things into a competition. So we have the competition as part of like the end of each cycle, the end of each block, um, where we can really address address those. But with the five C's uh, work that I'm doing, it, it's it's more. Um, of a linear process and a gradual process. So we're trying to pick a theme for the next four weeks or six weeks um, so, because psychology is not really done at people and it, it, it's, it needs to be reinforced by everyone and it needs to become kind of an ethos for the whole team during that period. So when we're talking about commitment, it's not me giving a 15-minute presentation on what commitment is and now go and be committed athletes. It's being reinforced by the coaches and all of the stuff around so that we can teach them how to, to show commitment across everything they do. Um, that makes sense. It does make sense. And it, yeah. it, it probably highlights that idea. And I'm going to make an assumption here. Um, a lot of high-level elite athletes are very organized, very fixated on, on schedules, very fixated on data very intentional in what they do because they realize their time is at a premium and they want to make every sacrifice possible to be the very best. From your time as a, as a decathlete and, and, a, and a, an elite one, a very, very good one at that, to your time now as a coach, 
do you find sometimes you have to check yourself with how intentional you are being just to realize and appreciate that they are children? Or do you find that that sort of level of intentionality is something that, that they control or that actually you don't need to police quite as much? Um, for, for me, I, th I think I have a pretty good grasp of it at this point. Um, if anything, I, I, I go the other way and I'm, I'm not structured enough. Um, for what for for maybe what other people are so the, I mean we have a range of coaches we ha we have some that are incredibly structured structured warm ups structured routines um, I go the other way and I, I try to spend my time teaching teaching my boys how to warm up how to look after their bodies and then when they turn up on competition day they say okay go and do your warm up and they know how to do that and they know how to do that for what they're about to do on that day given how they're feeling. Um, so it's structured in terms of the learning is structured. It's been a very obvious process over a number of years, but it's, it's, it's also quite loose in how it's delivered. And I think that brings in the concept of fun, which we wanted to touch upon there. The, I want to say I will come back to the range book and it, it talks really in detail about the difference between Roger Federer and Tiger Woods and how Tiger Woods went down a very fixed, deliberate practice in golf, no fun. It was drilled. Compared to Federer's very generalist, dabbled in every sport, great at most sports, and then he could select his pathway. Both accumulated their hours, but in different ways. And then you sort of see the result, don't you, down the line when they hit in their 30s and there was the, the famous breakdown. Is that something that you deliberately get in there? Is that fun aspect? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do something for 10 years and nothing but that, it has to be fun. Um, because otherwise it'll be a nightmare. And, and actually with my coach, we had a rule of, we have to laugh twice as much on the way home from training as on the way to training. Because you're going to have some days which are going to be awful. Because that's just how it goes. Um, but if you can laugh about it on the way home, then you can get up tomorrow and you can try again. Um, so it, it, has, it has to be fun, especially for the younger kids. Our, our job in the development program is not to start making athletes. The job number one is to inspire them to want to be an athlete. And you can only do that through enjoyment. No, I fully agree. And it's completely applicable to... To, to our teaching roles and, and, and inspiring students to want to actually physically move. Let, let's touch upon empathy there then as well, because you're going to have a huge amount of athletes that are in huge competitive situations and they're going to be have disappointments. They're going to have ups and downs. How do we bring in that fun approach, but also in an empathetic way? You know, I, I saw a really good example of this at a competition just before I came to Qatar. There was, I was at the national national championship for long jump. Um, luckily, my athlete won, which is great. But there, there was there were two athletes that were on two two fouls coming into the last round. Um, one of them, the coach was stressed that they were shouting at them before after the second foul. That athlete ran down, um, jumped from behind the board, but not a very good jump. And the coach was shouting at them because he was embarrassed, probably for himself. The next athlete was on two fouls, ran down, just touched the plasticine and did another foul. Um, so he's got three X's. 
finished lower in the competition and the coach sat back, laughed and said, oh, well, next time. And in just in that moment, I realised that here is someone who has smiled at someone in their worst moment. Yeah. And said, it's okay. And next time just, just says, we're going to come back and we're going to try again. And it's so simple, just being able to smile at someone when they're down and to inspire them ready to come back again. And that, that's it for me. Yeah, um, you, you describe a great analogy there. It's, it's a fantastic... We've seen it a lot, haven't we, Lewis, of coaches on the sidelines. And is there a real ethos there at Aspire to, to take a back step and allow mistakes to happen and allow failure to happen to then increase levels of performance later down the line? And so there's no fear of failure. I mean, I, I don't know whether whether it's an, an an ethos as such, but I mean that is that is coaching. I mean, it's um, it's it's trying. You, it's are you trying to develop confident athletes or are you trying to develop courageous athletes? And on the five C's, it says confidence. But really, what I'm talking about that having the courage to try something you know might fail. Um, and in that way, you know, for me, coaching long jump, try moving your arm here move your leg here, try coming in faster. And most of the time it's going to be a disaster, but you might learn something from it. You might learn where is the wrong place. You might also have that moment of magic and find the right place. And, but if you don't try and fail in all those different ways, you'll never do it. And if you can transfer that to the big competition, I know when I went to Delhi, I, I was not supposed to win a medal there. I was supposed to finish six, seven, eight, something like that. But I went there and went, well, I haven't got anything to lose. So I just told everyone I'm going to win a medal. <laughs> and I'm, I might have looked stupid and, and not won a medal or people might have admired my confidence or I might go on and win a medal but without that courage to just put yourself out there you, you don't have any chance and you can never really develop confidence and that's that manifestation isn't it Lewis we've talked about earlier you've just manifested that you're going to go and win a medal and it starts to put that thought process in your mind and all negativity is removed and he, if you can put it out there that I can do this, often your body follows. Whereas if you're believing that you can't, you won't. Is that how it felt, that state of flow there? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, that's where you have to start with that vision. You have to start with that. Um, you know, really seeing it clearly and, and believing that you could do it. Um, and then you'll start to see the process to achieving it. Um, otherwise, you're just, you know, you it's the, was it Alice in Wonderland? Where, where are you going? But wh which way do I go? Where are you going? I don't know. It doesn't matter where you go. You know, it's that, you know, I want to get better at athletics. Okay, we'll keep training then. It's not taking you anywhere. You have to have it very, very clear. And I was very clear going in, this is what I'm going to do. If I don't make it, maybe I'll finish fourth instead of sixth. But this time I happen to finish third. You know, if you aim big enough, when you fail, you fail big. And, yeah. and I, th I think that brings us back to your plate analogy earlier. And I think a lot of what we're talking about here are factors of a good coach. The analogy you made about the two long jump coaches is really interesting because you can bring a, a real polarisation now onto this idea that a coach is a generalist. A coach needs to have the subject-specific or the sport-specific knowledge to be able to coach an athlete. Of course they do. But if they only ever have that, the chances of success for that coach are incredibly slim. 
actually they need, and just to touch upon a few things we've talked about in the last 10 minutes, empathy. They need a knowledge of child development. They need intentionality with what they're doing. They need to be able to motivate children and allow them to make mistakes. And probably the, the why that you've talked about several times is about managing the expectations from that knowledge. And if we can start to harness what generalism looks like as a coach, I think we, we're in a good position as a profession to start to create better coaches. If you were to put together um, maybe five or six core skills that you feel are really important for a coach, would it be as simple as saying, actually, a five C's apply for a coach just as much as they do for one of your students? Sure. I mean, um, that's why I, I called them life skills, because I think... Um... You know, I learned just as much going through that process as and, and learning about each of them as as uh, the boys got out of it, I think. Um, but I, I mean, it's interesting, actually, when it when I when I you know, looked at name your podcast and well, what does that what does that really mean um, as you know, as we're coming up to, to speak about it? And, and it's exactly what you're just saying, that it's it's not about just learning more and more and more about a specific subject that that's going through the education degree you go into a phd you learn more and more about less and less whereas i think really when at some point you have to make that change of you have to accumulate a base base level of knowledge and then at some point you switch from trying to accumulate knowledge to how do i apply that knowledge and i think that change as a coach or an educator goes from i need to know enough about this subject to be able to coach it to how do I get someone else to do that? My job is not to know, know about shot put. I'm not, I'm not trying to get a PhD in shot put. I'm, how do I get someone to throw the shot put far? And my knowledge is going to now allow me to do that. I think that's really, when you make that shift, um, I think that's when you really start this kind of infinite learning process. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that spinning plates that you've talked about is the key there. Does, in the, in the moment that you're in, when that child fails that lung jump, is the most important thing there for them to know what they did wrong? Is it that plate that you're spinning, which is your sport-specific knowledge? Or is it actually, uh, you know what, I'm going to ignore that one. It's the most important thing for them now is that they realise this is a learning process or they realise that this is just a mistake and we learn from those mistakes. And, and you're right in sort of the, the way that you've started to explain what our podcast is about is that idea of the learning is a journey that you never get to the end of just like that 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 long jumper their long jump career doesn't finish because they hit the plasticine three times their long jump career continues but at that time it might feel a bit sticky it might feel a bit of a mess but they go back and they regroup and they go again and it sounds like what you're starting to do and what you are and what you have been doing at aspire for, for five years now is really going to help those students develop that that sort of overview and that feeling of being a generalist enough despite using athletics as the vehicle for their journey to, to be able to handle life and the scenarios that they throw at them yeah i mean we, we have to bear in mind that as, as we come back to where we were before how many of them go on to be elite athletes or how many of them go to world juniors maybe maybe five a year how many of them of those go on to the olympics you know, the numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller but can we use sport to teach these skills that they can transfer to any domain? But also, can we teach them these skills that allow them to continue a life in sport, whether it's as a competitor or as a, as a coach or biomechanics or strength conditioning or therapy? Having that background um, of understanding what it means to be an athlete is going to help. Um, and having those five C's underlying 
um, is going to help you whether you go into finance or teaching or, or whatever. It, it, you know, it's about becoming better people through the process. Sure. Brilliant. No, I love that. We, we're going to start winding it down now, Martin, have a bit of fun. We have some fun questions sure. just to finish off. I'm sure you've had and worked with some great coaches. So we, we always like to ask about three leaders from past, from present, dead or alive, who you would love to maybe take out to Villaggio and have a little meal with. Take <laughs> someone for a wrap in Villaggio. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I, 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 um, I tend to stay away from sport in these things, yeah. um, especially at this point where I've done this kind of reading and accumulating knowledge and, and I'm much more interested in, in applying it. So I reflect on this a little bit, and actually, I'm, I'm doing an MBA at the moment. I've just written a uh, just written a, a paper about leadership um, on Anne Mulcahy, who's who uh, led Xerox, the change turnaround at Xerox in the in the early 2000s. And I, I'd love to have a chat with her about what she uh, what she did because she took over a dying company and then spent the first 90 days traveling around America, traveling around the world to speak to people at all levels of the organization about what to do. And I think most people would have come in and said, right, kick the door down, I'm going to solve this. And she was humble enough to go and just speak to everyone, which, uh, which I think is exactly where you should start. You don't, don't assume you know everything. Ask the people on the ground what, what needs to be done and then come up with your plan and say, okay, let's go. Um, and I kind of, I like that philosophy and I try and keep that in my mind as I do it. So Anne Malky, we won. Um, and also there's um, someone that I always go back to from when I did my degree is Christine Lagarde, who is now, oh, she was, at the time she was president of the IMF um, because I heard these stories about her as a, as a female in such a high position, surrounded by men in the financial industry, must have been tough. And, and I like these games that she played where she would, in the winter, she would go into the, into the meetings wearing this big, big warm jacket and leave the heating off. Um, and then in the summer, she'd wear a light blouse and all the men had to keep their jacket on um, and the office would be boiling. And it meant that we got, they got the meetings done in half the time because people were desperate to make the decisions because they were cold or they were, or they were, or they were sweating. And, and I just, I just, I'd love to have a chat about more of those tools and those, those you know, understanding people. And, um, and then probably the last one is, is, um, is Seth Godin, who is, I'm reading all these books at the moment. Um, I mean, he's a guy who invented permission marketing. Um, and he's, he's basically, I think, probably the leading guy in the world about building a following, building a tribe. And, and it's, it's not about you. It's about building something for the people you seek to serve. And I really like that as I, as I build my pro jump program, as I build the development program, is that you have to put your ego to one side and you have to think about what do the people you're serving, what do our students need and build that? Um, and that's where I think that opens up so many more avenues for, for accumulating knowledge. When I realized the boys don't need a, a, better jump, a better jump program, a better development program than they already have. What they need is these other skills that they're lacking. So let's build that. So I'll probably take those three, Anne Mulcahy and Christine Lagarde and Seth Godin, and it'd be, it'd be a strange meal, but I'd enjoy it. Hell of a chat. Hell of a chat. Um, the next one for you, Martin, if you, if you were to um, buy yourself a billboard next to a, a busy highway in Qatar, what would you write on that billboard? What would be the message that you'd send to the masses? See, I, I am, I'm, I'm going to steal a 
quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's the, the American uh, physicist, and he said, "You should be ashamed to die until you've done something for humanity." And I and and I don't. I, that could be as grandiose as you want or as small as you want. And I, when I reflect on it, I think about well, my my coach coached me to to a good standard, coached a couple of athletes to a good standard. But really, his legacy is that I've gone on to coach in Qatar, and another athlete he coached was was until recently coaching with the Great Britain team endurance coach so he himself has created two coaches for the future and that just expands exponentially so I, it sounds grandiose but actually everyone can do something small that just pushes us forwards and I think we should all be aiming to do something like that. Okay, a wonderful message to share Martin and it's a uh... It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you very much for coming on. And I wonder if you could share with our viewers some of the news about where they can read a little bit more about the, about the work you do at Aspire and, and also the resources that you're creating to help schools worldwide at the moment. I mean, my, my resources and, and, and what I'm doing personally, I've got my website, martinbrockman.com. You can go and find that. Um, and you can follow me on, on Instagram at Brockman Athletics. Um, and there I'll, I'll be dropping stuff about Aspire and, and what I do and some videos of the training that we do with the boys. Um, and the resources are all on test. So go, go and find them. Lots of people downloading the free stuff, which is great. So enjoy. Terrific. And I know there's more to come, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've basically built the, built the Key Stage 3 curriculum as a, as a bit of a trial run seems to be popular um, and lots of requests for the key stage two. So I'm planning to get that and possibly even a key stage four curriculum out ready for this time next year. It's an awful lot of work, but um, since it seems in demand, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use what I'm doing at Aspire and, and what I've done over the last few years at all round decathlon knowledge to, to build some resources and to pass that knowledge on to, to teachers in schools really who don't, it doesn't seem there's access to that too much of that kind of stuff. So, I'll put it together and, and if it's useful, then it's, it's yours. Love it. You're practicing uh, what you preach and leaving a legacy for other schools around. And I know the vast majority of what you do is available for, for nothing, for free of charge, which is a, a hell of a, a, a nod to, to everybody's efforts and everything they're doing and a hell of a gesture. So thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for spending your time with us today, Martin. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Welcome. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks, Martin. For listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.